Welcome back to the podcast, dear listeners. This is the Shark Creative and Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith. And since we like to keep a variety going here on the podcast today, we're actually doing a Science in the Bible episode. So you remember that series we, that we started the podcast with? We're trying to wrap it up. So every Tuesday, you'll be able to hear about our Messianic prophecies, and every Friday, we'll be doing Science in the Bible. Since we're talking about science, I want to do a little plug for our marine biology program. Our marine biology program is set to go out next spring in April of 2022, and it's open to anyone who's 14 years old and up. So this is a great opportunity if you're in homeschool and looking for a lab science credit, or if you're just interested in marine biology in general. Um, there, You can get credit for this course because you do have a final exam and get a transcript. This is built like an entire college course. It's really intense. It's a lot of work, but it's also a lot of fun. A typical day would include you get up, you have breakfast together, and then you'd go to your science lecture in the morning where you're going to learn about kind of what you're doing for the day. And then you'd split up into your research groups uh, where you learn about the different specimens and how to classify them. You also get to go out in habitats and have some very unique hands-on experiences, um, one of them being hand-feeding sharks. Don't worry, it's really safe and it's in a controlled environment, uh, so no, there's no need to panic there. In the evening, we wind down, we have a Bible study, and then we also enjoy some volleyball and some time by the pool, and there's a little bit of free time in there. To get more information or to get your application started for this program, there's a little bit of some work in the application. You can just go to evidenceforfaith.org slash 2022 marine biology, or if you just click on our events tab, you will see it listed there. And with that, I hope to see you down in Florida in spring, and here is Michael in Science in the Bible, Human Biology. Hi, welcome to Evidence for Faith. It's your host, Michael Lane. So glad you're back with us. What we're doing today is this is a continuation of our series, uh, Science and the Bible, uh, where a lot of people say that the Bible is not a very good use um, as a science book, that there's a lot of science errors and stuff that's in the Bible. And we've been showing you, taking different disciplines of science, showing you that the science that is recorded in here is going to be accurate. And it is accurate because God, who is perfect, doesn't make mistakes. He told people to write these down under the influence of the Holy Spirit. They wrote these. And so it is his word, the word of God. God doesn't make mistakes. Oh, true. Science sometimes takes a long time to catch up to what God records, as we've been seeing through astronomy, uh, through geology, oceanography, and, and other subjects of science, other fields. Sometimes science disagrees with the Bible, but eventually science finally catches up to what the Bible's been saying for centuries and finds out that they're correct. We're going to see this today. This is lesson number seven, and we're going to be going into the field today of human anatomy. And we're going to get into human anatomy and physiology. Those are the ones. Now, the Bible doesn't have a lot to say on human anatomy and phys. There's just not much there. I uh, absolutely love this because uh, this is one of my favorite branches of science. I taught human anatomy and physiology for many years. So this is in like my wheelhouse in a way. I used to love this kind of thing, uh, that subject area when I uh, used to teach it. But um, this is not a science textbook. How many times I have said that? Probably in every episode a couple of times. It's not a science textbook. But what science is in here is going to be true. This, on the other hand, this is a science textbook. And this is a human anatomy, principles of anatomy and physiology. I have many of them down here in, um, in our uh, little library shelves behind me, but this is a science book. So it's out of books like this I used to teach, 
and we're going to be showing you a couple of things because the Bible doesn't have a lot to say about human anatomy and physiology. But again, what is there is going to be very accurate. Though it's confused people for years, it's going to be very accurate. So with that, that's what we're going to be doing with this one and uh, talking about how the human body is described in, in certain details anatomically, physiologically, inside the Bible. And we're going to see some fascinating things. So you, you game, you ready for this one? This is going to be a lot of fun going through this. Got the microscope out. Um, got a spear over in the corner. Yes, there's a reason for that. Um, I'm like Jason Bourne. I always have a reason for doing things. And so I don't do things at random. But here we go. So we're going to get into this and take a look. Now, anatomy and physiology are really sort of interesting subjects because over the centuries, people have studied the human body. They have studied uh, anatomy and physiology. Probably more than any other creature on the planet, humans have been studied. Yet we still know very little. Even to this day, we still know very little uh, compared to what's all there to, to be able to understand stuff. But, uh, and there's so much controversy still around this. One of the other subjects, now we're get, not getting into like um, medicine, that's a, an upcoming lesson. We're not getting into nutrition and things, that's an upcoming lesson, or psychology. So there's some aspects of the human body we aren't actually touching. We're talking today about anatomy, the structure of parts and stuff, and the physiology, how they work together, but mostly focusing on anatomy. What does the Bible have to say? Because, for instance, even in foods, uh, in nutrition, there's so many controversies over what you should eat and what you can't. I remember um, just a few back, uh, back a few decades ago, butter and eggs were terrible for you. Now they're saying, hey, no, it's good. See, science, science can't keep track. They, they constantly are flipping back and forth. It's like a, a tea, teeter-totter or a seesaw. Um, one moment it's saying, that, oh, this is bad for you, or this is, this is what uh, science says. In the next decade, oh, no, it's totally switched and flipped over to the other side. Um, just watch the news. I mean, this is going on constantly. And it's been going on like that, and it's still going on today. But we will have a thing on nutrition. If you pay attention and follow through and stay with the series, we're going to do one um, where we talk about the, um, some medical things in the Bible. And that, well, that, that is going to be so cool, getting into the medicine and things, and um, what's called the Mosaic Health Code, but I'm getting way ahead of myself. i got to slow down. So let's talk about anatomy and phys. Let's get into this one here. So what does the Bible say about human anatomy and physiology, and what is in there that we see science uh, did disagree with for a long time, but science finally came along with it? Let's talk about blood to begin with. Blood. Well, since ancient times, people have been uh, getting cuts and uh, maybe not paper cuts, but falling down skinning their knees, getting cuts in the hands, whatever, um, going out and tracking something down, they run into a thorn bush, they get blood. People know about blood to a degree. But it wasn't until the 1600s, we're talking AD here, 1600s, that people started to understand what blood is. In, in some cases, it was actually sort of taught that the human body has a lot of blood in it, but it was like it wasn't contained in anything, it was just filler up space. Uh, just to have, you know, to fill things up. And like, in a way, you might put it this way. I remember reading in one book, like uh, how if you take the body and were to cut off the top of the, the cranium here, um, you have all these parts in here, but then just to fill up all the extra space, they just pour blood in there and put the lid back on. And that blood was just supporting everything. And it was like the cushion for all this. It really didn't have much purpose. Well, yeah, right. But that's what was taught for a long time. 
The blood didn't circulate as we know today in blood vessels, which is amazing considering you look at the back of your hand, your arm, whatever. Um, if you have varicose veins, you can see there's blood vessels and stuff and blood is contained in it. But uh, they didn't understand that. They didn't know that blood flowed through, through vessels inside of the body. And, and what, the, what it was doing when it was doing this, it's carrying nutrients, it's carrying waste with it um, as it's going through a circulation inside the body. It wouldn't be until 1850 that a Swiss botanist named Carl Wilhelm von uh, Nageli actually discovered similar uh, pathways like what we see in people and in un and animals in plants. And we call this in plants, we call this in botany, um, xylem and phloem, it's vascular tissue. Xylem, you might recall from uh, biology days in school, basically moves water and um, minerals and phloem uses, uh, moves throughout the plant. The, carbohydrates, the oils, things like this from photosynthesis. But there's, it's contained inside of tubes. Well, they didn't know this about the human body until 1628. And when, even when this was discovered, it wasn't accepted right away. There was a lot of problems. It was a Christian guy, a guy who was a very strong Bible believer. His name was William Harvey. Um, Harvey wrote an, uh, a book called Anatomical es uh, Essay, on the motion of the heart and blood in animals. What he did is he studied the human body and he also studied things like eels and he studied shrimp and other type of animals. And he noticed that, that these creatures all have uh, blood vessels running through them and that blood was contained inside of these things. And he's the one who first described how the heart is actually working, that the heart is really just a pump pumping the blood through all the different areas. Also, which went against the time, that the heart wasn't just a, just a big pump, that the heart was also uh, keeping the blood separated. Um, blood that was full of carbon dioxide as opposed to what had oxygen. We talk, call it today venous blood and we call it arterial blood. And that the heart actually keeps them separated, not mixed together. In, in some animals, it is mixed together, but not so in humans. And so we have what's called a closed circulatory system. And so we, we keep our blood separated like that. And he was the first one to actually describe this. And what, what really amazes me, the guy didn't have like the microscopes like what we've got today that we're gonna be using in here today. He, he was using just simple little magnifying glass and to make his observations. Now, he, to be totally honest, he made a lot of inference or guesses or hypotheses of what was going on because he didn't have the scientific instruments to prove everything that he was trying to say. But he reasoned everything out and by studying also, he was a, a student of the Bible, by studying certain things, he realized blood is very important. It's not a leftover, it's a very important substance that is flowing through our body and it has a direct purpose. Um, we Today, we, we understand this. People understand that blood is very important. But back then, um, they used to think that if you're sick or something like that, that blood could actually damage the body and blood makes you sick. If you think about it for a second, if you've ever had an infection and it turns sort of darker red around there, well, they would reason, well, there's extra blood there. So blood is making us sick. So they would make cuts into this or they would take leeches and things and put on there to suck the blood out. Leeches are still used in some places in the, in the world today for such a thing to put it on infections. Um, but we have better ways of doing that in some cases. But anyway, they used to cut the body. This is a process that was called bleeding. You would bleed the person. And because blood is um, something that they, they would think was a bad thing to have uh, excess of, 
that the reason you're sick and having a problem is you got too much blood. So let's remove your blood, a lot of blood from the body. Let's get rid of excess amounts where the swelling, oh, let's get rid of all of this. And so they would drain it. Now, you might be thinking, how much did they drain? They couldn't be draining much. Yes, they did. They drained a lot. Um, And they would drain out large portions of a patient's blood when they're sick, Uh, which today we're like, what? But that's what they did. It's not that odd, really. Um, A few years back, I had an accident with an X. But I I cut the whole back of my hand with an axe and ended up having to go to the hospital. When I went to the hospital, an amazing thing took place. I went to the ER, um, all bandaged up. We had it bandaged, trying to reduce the blood flow because I had a massive cut across the back of my hand. And when I got into the back with the ER, um, uh, nurse and doctor, the doctor took one look at it and says, what'd you cut it on? I said, a rusty axe, an old axe that was my dad's. And he says, okay. He says, I'll be right back. He disappeared for a moment. And then he came back to my little room with a beaker, a one liter beaker, just like this. He set the beaker down on the table. He then took my hand and put my hand over the top of the beaker like thus. And he told the nurse, when it reaches 500 milliliters, which if you look at this, it's graduated on the side here. You can see 500. In other words, half of this. He says, when it reaches 500 milliliters, come and get me. And with that, he just walked out of the room. I was like, what? So I asked the nurse, being a person who used to teach human in that phys, I asked the nurse, what's he doing? What's going on? She says, I, I don't know why he's having you bleed that much. But um, she says, let me go ask. I'm, I'm a little puzzled too. She went and she asked and he, she came back a few moments later and says, because it was a dirty um, uh, axe, it was an, an old axe, he says, I want the blood, I want your body to clean the wounds, just let it bleed. And I go, okay, well, I get that. But I told the nurse, I said, 500 milliliters? That's, that's like a pint. I mean, that's, that's a lot of blood here. And she says, well, that's what the doctor ordered. So, okay. So we sat there. Uh, well, I sat there. She left to go treat other patients. And I'm sitting here just watching blood just pour out of my huge cut that went across the back of my hand from my index finger. Going up back, you can still see part of a scar of this today. Um, wasn't the best stitching job I ever saw that went back across like this and it's opened up. You could see tendon and everything. Actually, the tendon sheath was actually cut and we're sitting here and I'm just sitting in a chair for a while. It didn't take too long to get the 500 mils. The nurse kept popping in um, and then she came in. She says, oh, you're um, by then when she did come in, I was slightly over 500 mils. So she says, I got to go get the doctor. Well, the doctor was another patient now. And when she came back, with him finally, it was close to um, a whole liter was now out um, bleeding. He says, well, that should be clean, cleaned up enough. And then he took the blood and put it on a table, which they then disposed of. And then he used peroxide and some alcohol and stuff. And really, that was a lot of fun. Um, and then he put just seven stitches on this massive thing. He says, I'm going to leave it like that, but you'll be fine. He put me on some antibiotics and um, I did end up, even with all that, I ended up with a really bad infection that ran down my finger and up my arm. Um, so we had to do a lot of things back and forth with the doctor and different medications because I had an infection. Yeah, hello for the want of leeches, but no, they didn't have any of those there. But anyway, that's what they would do. Um, they would, in old days, they used to just bleed the person. So this was a little unusual. Other doctors who I've told this, this story to, they're like, what? He 
bludge you out a whole liter? I, I said, yeah, when, when it was time to leave, I could barely stand up. I was so tired. Um, remember, they, I, we went across the, the road to a pharmacy and I sat in a chair in the pharmacy um, because I couldn't stand up. And I was just like liquid water in the chair. <laughs> I was so out of it. Um, but yeah, that was taking a lot of blood out, um, considering I probably only, only have about uh, maybe five and a half to six of these in my entire body. So he removed quite a bit of blood. Normally you remove a lot of blood, that's a bad thing. And he was doing it for an, uh, a purpose, but that's what they used to do. If you got ill, they would bleed you. And if you're not bleeding good enough, they'd make cuts in your body. They would make certain cuts, not just at the, where the wound was. They would take out, say you're hurting a leg, they would still drain it, um, possibly out of your arms, or in some cases, there's old drawings of them actually taking cuts into the neck and sitting there with bowls collecting the blood. And that was called bleeding, and that's what they did. How much they would take out depended upon the illness. If it was an accident, they might take so much, but if you had an illness, say like scarlet fever or something, they would take out a lot more because they thought that's what's making you sick. So that's the way it was done. Now, modern medicine today totally just scoffs at this whole foolish notion. Like, this is the goofiest thing ever uh, to do that kind of thing. Um, today, when someone's hurt, uh, you don't bleed them, you put blood into them. You'll, they'll hang units of blood. Maybe some of you listening have had that happen. You've had blood transfusions. Um, and, and from uh, even certain illnesses, not just accidents, but certain illnesses require blood transfusions. So that's the way it's done today. Well, the most classic case of how screwed up this system was, and by the way, there is nothing about bleeding a person in the Bible. <laughs> no, not at all. Actually, it's sort of the contrary. But a famous story, I, have, I love telling the story because this is just so sad, um, but it's a true story. George Washington, the father of our country, our first president, um, back in 1799, in December, December 12th, he went for a horseback ride around his property, um, and he was marking trees. He was feeling fine. He marked trees to be felled on his different farm, uh, different areas around Mount Vernon. Then um, he came back, and that night was a dinner party. At the dinner party, he developed a sore throat. Went to bed that night, he had a sore throat. As the night went on, it got worse. The next day, he wakes up, his throat is really sore. Basically, the only symptom that, that is recorded, he had a very, very sore, uh, sore throat. So he um, had uh, his people, um, his, uh, his staff there to summon the doctors. And like three different doctors showed up. I think a fourth one eventually came too in the afternoon. But they came, and you know what they did to him? Oh, he's really sick, sore throat. They're looking down his throat. Oh, it's really inflamed. Okay, let's bleed him. So they started bleeding him. And they bled off uh, about a pint and he didn't feel any better, let's take another pint. And they kept doing this throughout the day into the evening, and eventually they took off, you ready? Three quarts of blood. Three quarts! They took out like half his blood supply. Uh, <laughs> more than half, they, they removed from his body. And he died the next day. Wow, how did that happen? That was the worst thing they could have done. Why? Because blood is necessary. Blood helps us fight diseases. So Harvey started to show us this. Blood just, just doesn't uh, sit inside the body doing nothing. It, it is very important uh, because it carries things to help fight diseases. Today we know that blood's not a fluid. It's a tissue made up of different types of cells, and these different cells, there's different things in there. As you take a look at a blood cell uh, or a blood smear on a slide, I have my microscope set up. And we're gonna take a look right now. This is at 1,000 magnification. And we're gonna take a look. And yes, we have some, some blood cells. 
And what we're seeing here with this is you'll see little pink spheres, um, sort of uh, transparent in the center. Those are erythrocytes or what's called red blood cells. What do they do? They carry the wastes and the oxygen. They carry carbon dioxide as a waste product from the organs all over your body. And they, um, they also carry the oxygen that you obtain from your lungs. And they carry these things all over your body, depositing them by, um, by diffusion to different sections of your body. There's also some other things in here. You'll notice that there's something, now this slide has been stained so you can see it well. But as you're looking at this slide, um, I have focused on a very odd looking thing in the center that's sort of stained purplish blue lilac color. And it's got some, definitely some uh, nucleus that's in here. This is called a basophil. And a basophil is just one of five different types of what we call leukocytes or white blood cells. And what they do, there's, they come in different shapes. They're very easy to identify. They have different shapes. But these things help fight diseases and problems with your body. So we have basophils, we have you know, cinephils, there's monocytes, there's lymphocytes, and there's neutrophils. And these things are very important to have in your body. Now, if you get too many of one of those, that's bad, but they're balanced. You have a balanced system of this, and white blood cells fight diseases. So here we have George Washington, very sick, probably a bacterial infection. So what do they do? They drain out the things that God has designed inside of us to fight these diseases. No wonder the guy died. They took out his army. The army that was, that was supposed to be fighting the infection, they were removing it. Um, there's also little platelets that you'll find on the slide. You might be able to make out. They're going to be little tiny, tiny dots. There's a few, one right above the eosinophil in the white field. There's a little dot there. That is called a platelet, which helped clot the blood. So all these things are so important. Blood is just a fascinating thing, and it's very important. Now look what the Bible says about blood. God, around 1450 BC, is talking to his servant Moses, and he says to write this down. Moses is putting together the law, um, the Torah, and in the book of what we have today called Leviticus, chapter 17, verse 11, God says this, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. Right there, life, blood, they go together. So you, <laughs> why did they do this? Like with poor George Washington. Oh, he's alive. I know, let's take the blood out. No, the life is in the blood. You need blood. It's living tissue and it fights infections and stuff. God said this back at the time of the Egyptians, even though they didn't understand anything, there were no microscopes or anything, but God is telling us blood is necessary for life. It's very important. And that's where we're talking about, or what we're talking about here today, that God is saying, life is blood. You have to have this. It's not a waste leftover, which is what science was saying for centuries. But it was totally contrary to the Bible, all the way back to 1450 BC. Now medical science, yes, medical science is caught up. Uh, the Bible was correct. Uh, blood is indeed life. But, um, you know, it wasn't until, like, just before World War II that even what, 80 years ago that they started to figure out about blood. There's still a lot of things about blood we don't understand. They didn't know that there were different blood types, A, B, A, B, and O. That wasn't discovered until about 1940. That there was plasma, fluid, that the blood cells float around in that carry all sorts of proteins and hormones and stuff. A guy by the name of Charles Drew was the one who discovered that in 1938. And, and these things are so important. We're just starting. He's the guy who didn't who discovered plasma, which was so important in World War II. He saved tens of thousands of lives 
by his discovery. Fascinating thing uh, that blood is. And it's still being studied. Matter of fact, we're trying to manufacture, scientists today, trying to manufacture artificial blood. For what purpose? For people who get in an accident out in the field, they can't get a blood transfusion immediately. There have been some products that have been made, um, trying, and they're still working on it, trying to find a substitute blood. There's a couple that are out there uh, that have been used, but nothing works as good as, as blood itself, because blood is a living tissue. But the Red Cross even uses its slogan. You all heard this? Give life, give blood. Doesn't that sound like that's right out of Leviticus 17? Give life, give blood, because blood is life. That's what God said 3,450 years ago. Well, that's the dealing with blood. Let's move to another part. Another anatomical part having to do with uh, um, hum uh, human biology, human anatomy, physiology, and stuff. And this one just fascinates me. One of my favorite topics that I love to talk on is the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, I do many different types of lessons on this. And in my opinion, it's one of the most fascinating science facts that you see in the Bible, dealing with anatomy physiology. You see, when Jesus was crucified, he wasn't, it wasn't done in, uh, in private, it was done in public. One of his disciples, a fisherman uh, named John, was there who was an eyewitness, and he wrote down what he actually saw. Now, skeptics, critics of the Bible, have for a long time said that John wrote something and misinterpreted it, that he didn't write it very accurately. You know, he's just a fisherman. He's not that old or something like that. So he, what he wrote was, was uh, just not accurate. Well, on the other hand, when you actually study it today, you're going to see what John described was very, very accurate, according to Anatomy Physiology. I want to focus on a section uh, that John wrote. It's, the crucifixion is in John 19. And he says this. Now, Jesus has died already on the cross. He's dead. He died early compared to the others. The others are still alive. Um, but we are at Passover, the holiest time of the year, like for the Jews. And they can't have dead bodies that they have murdered hanging on crosses. So the chief priests go to Pilate and they say, you've got to get these bodies down before sunset. So Pilate can, um, uh, acquiesces to their request. And he he said, okay, he sends the Romans out as they would do, and they would take um, big hammers and stuff, and they would break the legs of the person. Why is this fatal? Why would this speed up the death? Because on a cross, as you're hanging, you uh, have to be able to breathe. You've got to push on your legs to push yourself up because you're just hanging otherwise, and you can't breathe. So most people die of suffocation on the cross. So if you break the legs, they can't push, and they uh, asphyxiate very quickly afterwards. When they came to Jesus, it says, and this is John 19, 33 through 34, we'll pick it up. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. Okay, Romans did that kind of thing. This is a, Roman, a replica of a Roman spear uh, from the first century. This is what they would look like. You can see it's not very tall which right there shows you something. If they're stabbing him in the side with this, and it's a, they wouldn't throw this. The guy would be holding it. There's a spot here where you actually hold it. And so he's stabbing Jesus with this in the side. Right now, you just notice, you should have noticed something. Jesus is on a short cross. He can't be on a cross 75 feet high or something like sometimes we see depicted in paintings. 
had to be on a short cross to get this point um, put into his side, but they would poke him in the side. So it says, the soldier pierced his side with a spear. Okay, that's what this was all used for. And he wouldn't have thrown it, he just would reach up, stab it, pull it out. John continues and says, and at once there came out blood. Stop here for a second. Well, that makes perfect sense. Um, anytime you're going to take, the Romans knew these kind of things. They're going to, um, you're going to stab a body, blood's going to come out. I think most people understood that one. So no one has a problem with that. You stab them in the side, blood comes out. Okay, but it's the next two words that critics and people have problems with sometimes. It says, besides blood and water. So let me repeat the verse. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Then John goes on and he says, he who saw it, talking about himself, has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. I mean, he's there. That you may also believe. So this is a very definitive statement, Jesus is dead. You see, there is a, a idea today going around, very popular, that Jesus didn't die on the cross, that he just fainted. Well, that is ridiculous, because who is going to survive a spear like this being stabbed inside the vital organs of a person? Um, and he's not going to be able to walk around from... Uh, Jerusalem up to Galilee. So this whole thing that Jesus fainted on the cross or whatever, that is just ridiculous. Uh, maybe we will put the series having to do with the crucifixion sometime on our website here on Evidence for Faith, or you can have me come. I'd love to come and tell you about um, the, the death of Christ on the cross, though it is a little gruesome, but it's fascinating. Um, but anyway, what the Romans would do, they would stab the person to make sure they're dead. Now, they're not taking like a sword, um, here is a Roman sword. They're not taking a Roman sword uh, like this and stabbing him in the leg or something. Um, they're using a spear, but even if they used a sword in any case, one of, one of the other, when they went to test somebody or to kill somebody, they didn't um, just go for like a leg or an arm, like, oh, let's wound the person. No, they would go for a vital organ. A trained soldier would know where to thrust. And with the spear, they went into the rib cage. Why? What they're doing? They're trying to actually puncture the heart, a fatal wound. Even if Jesus is not dead, or if he's fainted, they're stabbing him in the heart. And by doing this, they might be passing through because he's up a little bit higher than where the soldier was. They might go through part of the liver. Depends on exactly where they stabbed him. But they would go up to the, um, into the lung, definitely. They would, that's what they normally did. They would take this uh, weapon and go into the lung up to the heart. They're trying to reach the heart. And so, like even in gladiatorial schools and stuff, if you saw the movie Gladiator or whatever, or other Roman um, movies and documentaries, um, Roman soldiers and gladiators were not trained to go after, you know, something non-essential. You try and kill the person, you go for the vital organs. Even today, we try and go for vital organs. Um, so you would hit, the idea was to hit the heart, because that's a fatal wound. So this stabbing, even if Jesus wasn't dead, this is a fatal wound. Jesus died on the cross, period. There's no question about it. Uh, the Romans then go back. The guy who did it reports to, to Pilate. Yep, he's dead. And I double-checked it. I stabbed him in the heart. He's dead. So it's there. Jesus was dead. And I have an illustration showing possibly where the wound might have been. But the thing is, they would have gone at least through part of the, 
the lung and into the ventricle because that's what they would go for. They go for the heart. Now, why am I making a big emphasis of this? This, this is what is so cool about it. Anatomically, your heart is beating even before you're born. And as it's moving inside your chest, it's a moving object. If you will for a minute, if you can, uh, take your two hands, put them together, and start just moving them back and forth. You will notice something in just a matter of seconds. Heat. Why? Because you've got two moving objects rubbing against each other, creating friction. Friction makes heat. Before you're even born, just days after conception, you have a heart, and the heart is beating. And as the heart beats, it is rubbing against organs. This would cause intense pain. Well, in God's design, oh, God, talk about heartburn. Would this be worse than heartburn? Your heart beating, and if you're exercising or something, your heart rate goes up. Oh, my gosh, the pain that would cause from the heat of this. But God did something amazing when he created us and designed us. He actually put the heart inside of a chamber called the pericardial cavity. It sits in between your two lungs. There's a membrane around the heart called the pericardium. The heart sits inside this sac, this membranous sac. This pericardial membrane uh, it's, produces a liquid called a transit, uh, um, transdute, oh no, gee, I can't think of the name of it, okay. Um, transudate, there we go. It's called a transudate. The transudate actually is a lubricant that reduces friction. It's one of the best lubricants known in the universe. It's, it's brilliant. Um, and your, the membrane actually secretes this. So the heart sits inside of a cavity filled with this lubricant, and as fast as it beats, it is not building up a lot of friction. So the thing is, this, it's called pericardial fluid. This transidate called pericardial fluid, if you remove it from the body, it looks like water. That's why I keep saying, well, how do I know Jesus was stabbed in the heart? This is why. If you take a spear, stab a person in the heart, blood's going to come out first, of course, but then that transidate, that pericardial fluid's going to come out also down the side. And to a layperson like John, who was a fisherman, it would appear to be like water. That tells us, anatomically, Jesus was stabbed in the heart because you hit the pericardial fluid. That's why it's like that, and it looks like water. Now, to be honest, I have heard some of the most bizarre, ridiculous sermons on this. Um, one uh, explanation that I had uh, sitting in a church one time, uh, the preacher told the congregation from the pulpit that what they did is uh, when it says blood and water flowed, he said, yeah, well, well, that makes sense, you know, blood coming out. But the water, he said, was urine, that the, the soldier actually stabbed Jesus in the bladder. Actually, I, to be honest, I thought he was making a joke and I started to laugh out loud. Then I realized I'm the only person laughing because... No Roman soldier or gladiator would ever be trained, hey, you're going to kill somebody? Go for the bladder. Go for the bladder. Go for the bladder. They didn't do that. You go for the heart. You're going to go for the heart. You're going to stab in the heart, not the bladder. Oh, my gosh. Um, plus, Jesus is dehydrated. What little bladder would, uh, liquid inside the bladder would not have appeared as water. John might have wrote, oh, out came out water and Mountain Dew because um, it's going to be yellowish in color. No, that's not what it was. This is, it's, it's ridiculous. But Jesus was stabbed in the heart. We know because it's pericardial fluid that's being described here. And what John wrote then is extremely accurate. He wrote a very, very, even though he's a fisherman, he wrote a very accurate 
account of what took place, of what happened internally, anatomically to Jesus when he was stabbed by this Roman to make sure that he was dead. And as I said, even if he he was still alive, this would be a fatal wound, but he was already dead. That was the test for it. So that's what John witnessed. John sees this, he witnesses this, and he sees pericardial fluid besides blood coming out, and that was the way he described it. It makes perfect sense. It's totally logical. And it fits perfectly with any human anatomy physiology textbook we have today. And speaking of Jesus, let's get to another um, physiological thing. Sort of this is medical, but I want to show you something fascinating about this too, since we're on the crucifixion. You see, Jesus, before he goes to the cross, Luke's gospel records him going to the Garden of Gethsemane. Actually, they all do. But Luke actually mentions something medically in this, um, this situation with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. After the Last Supper, Jesus crosses over to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's there. And uh, Luke describes him um, going through a lot of anguish. Why was Jesus going through anguish? It's because Jesus, being the Son of God, he knows every single person. He knows all of the sins we have ever committed, and he is taking all of our sins, and it's coming upon him at this time. And just think about all the anguish, all the suffering, all the shame of all the sins, not just of one person, but of the entire world, all on one person. How overwhelming this is. Well, there's a medical condition um, that can happen. It's rare, but it does happen. And apparently, this happened to Jesus because Luke describes it. The condition is called hematidrosis. Hematidrosis is actually when the capillaries of, um, around, of the, in the, the dermis of the skin are breaking down and sometimes they leach blood into a sweat pore, um, which mixes with the sweat and then goes up through the, the tube connecting to the surface of the skin and deposits a bloody sweat. Uh, or sometimes even the skin can, um, it, it becomes very uh, fragile and can rupture um, in other areas of the body. The skin can actually split. Under, under hematridosis, if I, was to if I had it right now and if I took my hand, and if I just applied pressure across my skin like this, I could rip open my skin easily. The skin becomes very, very fragile. Now, why am I telling you about this medical thing? Well, it's a condition that we do know happens. Actually, Leonardo da Vinci actually wrote about a soldier who had this. It only happens under great stress. Well, I shouldn't say only. There are other cases, allergic reactions at times can cause this. It's extremely rare or certain diseases can pop up. Um, it's similar to like someone who's bleeding from their eyes and stuff you've seen in some movies. James Bond has that type of thing. But um, this does happen, but it's very, very rare. Um, in some cases, it can be a genetic thing, but most cases it's because of great stress. Da Vinci recorded about a soldier who was under tremendous stress um, before a battle that he broke out in a bloody sweat. Um, they didn't know the term, but Da Vinci, very educated person, um, very knowledgeable, described this, that this is something that happens. Um, I have read that one. I've read about other cases, about a person who was on board, a teenager who was on board a sinking ship at um, in a storm at sea, thought for certain he was going to die, and um, broke out in this type of a sweat. People who have been recorded in executions, particularly in Europe, um, in some of the recordings of people being um, having their... Their, um, their execution, their head chopped off or whatever, or being disemboweled, 
have been under tremendous sweat and it's been recorded where they have actually broke out when they came to get them. They're covered in, in a bloody sweat. Um, there have been some cases with sexual assault. We're talking really severe, um, very severe trauma and emotion uh, and stress to a person. People who, there have been a few cases that have been recorded um, by police forces and medical facilities and papers written on it that um, girls in particular, every case I've come across, I've heard of, has been a female who uh, was going uh, about to be sexually assaulted, had been tied up or something like this, it happens. There's also cases that have been written about um, during the Blitz in London when people were down in the subways and stuff with the bombs falling down. That some On a rare occasion, very rare, somebody would break out in this type of a sweat. So hematridosis, like I say, it caused by the blood, the capillaries around the sweat glands breaking down and spilling the blood into the gland where it mixes. And the skin becomes extremely fragile when this happens. So it's gotta be caused in most cases by extreme stress. And I'm talking more than like finals, uh, final exams at college or in high school or something, uh, or even problems like you know having a fight with your wife or something. It's got to be a lot more like that, uh, much more severe. Jesus, just think about this. Jesus is taking all of the sins, and he knows these, he knows every one of these, taking all the sins of every person in the Garden of Gethsemane is being dumped on him, actually not being dumped, he's willingly accepting this, all of this, and it like is crushing to him, to the point that he goes through hematidosis. Now, in this, the body temperature um, drops, you cannot retain your body temperature, and when Jesus in Gethsemane, this is early spring, the temperature was cool outside, we read that they, the, at the um, the trial, they had a fire there because it was cold outside. So he would be having that problem also. Remember, when Jesus was arrested, they didn't treat him nicely. They were slapping him, spitting on him, hitting him, and stuff like this. Plus what the Romans did when they, they took him to crucify him and were hitting him with the flagrum, the, the, the whips, and they, they did that to his body. Just now take all of that and put hematridosis on top of it all. You can see how terrible this is. And of all people, it's only recorded in the Bible, in Luke's gospel. Why is it only in Luke's gospel? Luke is a doctor, he's a physician. He would have studied this, he would have known about this. Because he writes in Luke chapter 22, verse 44, he says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. It's not talking about, the Greek here is not talking about symbolism. It's actually saying it appears to be great drops of blood is the way that this is set up. So that's what he's going through. And it is a case, and I've heard many doctors, I've sat through some seminars actually, of physicians actually talking about this with patients and stuff, and specifically about the cross and, and Jesus on the cross. So at the time of all of this, being human, because he is human from Mary, uh, yes, he's the son of God because of the Holy Spirit, but he's going through all of this struggle, all this pain, et cetera, et cetera, of the, of the anguish of sin for us that the stress causes him to have hematridosis. And Luke, a physician, recognizes this as he's told this and he writes it down. So there we have a fascinating thing. Some call this a miracle to Jesus. But no, no, it's not a miracle because this is a medical condition. Uh, it's not a miracle. It's the result of enduring our sins brought on this disorder. That's what did it. And now we've only examined a few of human anatomy details. Like I say, the Bible doesn't have a lot on human anatomy. 
uh, physiology. There's not a lot there. But what is here, as you've noticed, is extremely accurate. The Bible is not a science textbook, but what science is there, as I've been saying through this whole series, is very, very accurate, and it's truth. Because the Bible is truth. That's what this whole thing is about. The Bible is true. So I hope you've enjoyed this series with us, and I thank you so much for joining us. And if, if you love this, tell your friends, pass it around, share this with others. Um, there's other lessons you can download, uh, other series that we're doing, and we have some more series that will be coming up very soon. Um, would love to hear from you. Um, please comment, or I would love to come. If you can have me come, speak at your church or some organization or some group, we would be thrilled with that. If you would love to get involved in this ministry, we would love to have your support. We're just trying to get the Word of God out to people and, and trying to show people that the Word of God is true. So I hope you enjoyed this. Join us again for the next lesson. Until then, take care and God bless. Goodbye. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you would like to hear Michael live, you can also check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org or book your own event with Michael. So this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.